All right, three, two, one. Welcome to Behind the Curtain with me, Jonah, and my friend Andrew. Andrew is, well, was or is the 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 most recent uh, what is it award receiving Charlie Stiffing graduate student award. I mean, uh, yeah. I don't know how to I don't know how to say that, but tell me and tell everybody what that is. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, first, thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk on this. I I should. Uh, I should preface by saying, actually, I was listening to your talk with Galen this morning and just kind of prepping for everything coming up here. So it's it's uh, awesome to be on here and happy to, to talk to you. But um, yeah, so um, about a month ago now, uh, just uh, application for an award. I'm a graduate student at Cornell University. We can kind of talk about what that means, but um, doing uh, anim- working in animal nutrition. And um, there's a company out there who uh, sells products for animal nutrition, specifically in dairy cattle and a lot of livestock production animals. Um, But they uh, have an annual award um, that you can submit to and and put in in an application for. And I received it this year, which was awesome. And and uh, that what that meant was um, there's an annual conference that's held. Uh, and I get to present some of my uh, work that's happening uh, currently and uh, comes with a plaque and a little bit of cash money, too. So that always that always helps the bank account in, in some of these COVID times anyway. So, yeah, I mean, the long the, the short of it is really it's just a, an award um, that uh, came with with some of the work that I've been doing uh, here at Cornell. So. So what are you working on? I read something about aminos with cows. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, to put it simply, uh, I'm in dairy nutrition. And, you know, for those who are familiar, you know where I come from. I uh, grew up on a dairy farm in Chazy. Jonah and I went to school together, high school. Um, and, you know, I uh, at first had the ambition of going back home and helping out the dairy, family dairy. Uh, that still comes up in my mind uh, quite frequently. But, um, you know, I've uh, gotten a uh, liking to and, a, and a, an affinity for nutrition in terms of ruminant animals. And so that's, that's quite a bit different than, than human or monogastric nutrition in okay. the sense that, um, you know, for, the, for ruminant animals, uh, the biggest thing is they're able to consume highly lignified or, or uh, structural carbohydrates, which would be basically locked up for us, um, really have no nutritional value um, beyond what we, what the dogma has been, you know, maybe for the last 50 to 60 years, the, the human nutrition side of things is finally coming to, to realize that fiber is important, uh, for, for, uh, nutritive benefits for a lot of different things. And, you know, we've been sitting over here saying, yeah, that's, it's pretty much what we've been working with for a lot, a lot of time. Um, so, you know, a ruminant's able to capitalize on that, uh, break down those carbohydrates, uh, and the microbes within the rumen of the cow, which is a compartment just before the abomasum or the stomach, if you were to uh, align that with, with uh, what our uh, anatomy is, uh, those microbes break that down. They can actually turn those things, uh, as long as there's nitrogen in the system, into amino acids and kind of basically use it for their own benefits. Now, the benefit for the cow is that those populations of microbes grow they spill over from rumen and then they dump into the abomasum and the gastrointestinal tract 
those are highly digestible and, and available amino acids that are broken down and, and absorbed for the cow, um, meeting a lot of their requirements um, for uh, maintenance, growth, lactation, whatever whatever we're trying to look at over time. So my, my, uh, my work is focused specifically on amino acids, the essentials. So depending upon who you ask in the world, you know, there's nine, maybe 10 uh, conditionally essential amino acids. Um, for dairy cattle, we're primarily interested in methionine and lysine without getting too much uh, into the details because we don't want to put everybody to sleep. But um, no, no, get it. I want to know because like for, on my side with the personal training, these are all words and these are all things that we use for our clients and when we explain them. So no, tell me why a cow and the lysine is so important in the cow. Right. So, so um, I think when we, when we rank uh, amino acids, which uh, the first one being the most limiting. So what I mean when I say most limiting for those who are not familiar to that is when you consume a diet, um, there's different profiles of amino acids and different quantities in which you consume them. And depending upon what you're trying to do with your lives, whether it's just sit here and talk to one another, uh, go pump some iron, you're running marathons, uh, there's different requirements for you uh, in terms of those nutrients, whether it's amino acids or, or carbohydrates or fats. For a dairy cow, um, they're, what we're primarily interested in is getting volumes of milk out, uh, and also protein, the protein. So, you know, for your value added products, whether that's cheese or yogurt or ice cream, there's a demand for those proteins. So, uh, anabolic protein accretion is, a, is an all or nothing process. You, you understand that. So if you don't have, you're lacking on a particular amino acid, the system, the cellular system is going to try to compensate for that, but it can only do so much. And what you end up happening is the cell recognizes that I don't have a particular amino acid, so I can't make the protein you're trying to have me make. And what ends up happening is every other, all the other amino acids that are in excess get catabolized for energy purposes and the nitrogen just gets excreted in urine. And uh, that's a waste for the animal or for the human or whoever you're trying to feed. So methionine typically is the first limiting amino acid whenever we're trying to, to uh, formulate rations. So we're really trying to make sure based on the cattle's requirement, how much she weighs, how much she produces in milk, we want to meet the supply that she needs for methionine. You know, it's the same thing for, for humans. Methionine and lysine are up there. Methionine, uh, biologically speaking, it's needed for the initiation of, of protein synthesis. And so the cow's regularly turning over you know, several uh, pounds of protein a day. So she needs that methionine readily available for, for production purposes. There's a lot of other things beyond just uh, mm. no production that we can get into. Lysine is more of a supply thing. So some of the things that we're feeding uh, cattle are lacking in lysine. And so just by its inherent nature, um, the, the supply side is, is not quite enough to meet that demand. So we have to compensate with other types of products, whether that's uh, soy um, or uh, some amino acids um, that we put into the system uh, so the cow is able to utilize those uh, effectively. Now, you know, we're within the lab that I'm working in is, is far beyond just methionine and lysine. We're trying to do, you know, all your branch chains, um, arginine, which is conditionally essential, but we have an inclination that it uh, has a demand for other 
uh, processes that help alleviate some other non-essential amino acids. Um, so, you know, not to get into a whole scientific lecture yeah. here, there, there's lots of different moving parts here that we're trying to formulate for. And how are you helping regulate these amino acids in the cows? Like, how are you getting them into the cows? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I think uh, in the simplest terms, um, we have feeding trials that evaluate different supplies of particular nutrients. And usually what we do is we perturb maybe one or two amino acids um, and just to kind of see how the cow responds to, to those uh, nutrients. And, you know, for any feeding trial, regardless of whether it's uh, cows or humans or, or rodents or whatever you're working with, that, that's usually how the, the, the dogma has been, been done. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with, with well, obviously you have your clients track macros uh, mm -hmm. over time, right? And so what, what systems do you use to have them help them track those macros? Because obviously they're not doing it in their head. No, and that's like, well, now every day, now everyone has a phone on them. And so yeah. like the app, my fitness pal is uh, what well, I think the easiest one, just because I'm so, I'm so used to it and I've used it for so long. And I've talked to trainers and I think the best way to do it is just to start small and only track one macro at a time and then make sure we understand how much food that is and on a regular day, how much they're putting in their body. And then we maybe go to two and then, I mean, and usually I'll start with like a protein because the protein is so important when we're training with people that we want to hit that daily limit and just and sometimes that's the hardest for people to do because protein can be in such lean foods that it can actually turn into a lot of food just to eat for them and so sure. we'll break it will break it down piece by piece by piece and eventually the whole the whole puzzle will come together where they're looking at the, the carbs the fats the proteins and the fiber all as one thing and not just separate little pieces yeah definitely so you know I figured, you know, the, the MyFitnessPal would be kind of a go-to in terms of, of software and, and tracking. And actually, uh, again, with, with human nutrition, it, it's pretty, um, uh, we run pretty much in tandem. Uh, so we have platforms that actually uh, help with tracking macros. And we're trying to get more specific beyond just uh, protein or carbohydrates and okay. looking at, at fractions of, of amino acids. Um you know, starch, fiber, sugar, mm -hmm. different types of fatty acids too, because what we're finding is all fats, not the same. You guys know that in terms of saturated, unsaturated, but actually chain link. So your C16s, your 18s, your DHA, all those different uh, fatty acids have different nutritional signals beyond just their macro purposes mm -hmm. that kind of help set those, those animals or, or humans up. And so, you know, similar to what you would do if you were to start out with find my fitness, you put in your weight, how active you are, what kind of uh, workouts you're doing, all those types of things. And in the background that, that uh, program is calculating what your metabolic requirements are and how much, depending upon what your goals are, what you need to be in terms of deficit or, or excess for those macros. And we do it very similar. So, you know, we don't, we don't do it for a specific animal, because um, that's really not how things are done commercially. We kind of feed for uh, an average of, of uh, groups of animals, depending upon uh, okay. their requirements. So uh, to put it simply, um, lactation requirements over time. So when a cow first becomes uh, or first starts lactating, her nutritional requirements are different than if she was uh, 200 days in her lactation. 
Um, so we group those animals accordingly and they have different requirements for those macros. Um, and so that's the requirement side of things. And then on the supply, uh, dairy farmers have inventories of forages um, and other off-farm kind of byproducts that are a result of, of human uh, food production. We can talk about that, how that's a yeah. huge. What do you mean by that? So, you know, your forages, obviously, like uh, corn, um, uh, grass silages, all those things. But depending upon where you are in the U.S. or even the world, there's a large um, a proportion of what we're feeding our animals comes from uh, byproducts of the human supply chain. And so, you know, one of the biggest ones uh, is soy products. Uh, so any of your soy based proteins that you're feeding, you know, like your, your uh, plant-based whey powders that are coming in. They're not necessarily whey, but they're, they're plant-based uh, protein powders. They don't just come out of the field as pure protein. Um, you're extracting a lot of those fats and some of those carbohydrates. And so, you know, what do we do with those leftover uh, distillates? And so there's opportunities there to not feed it all to cattle or, or to certain animals, but to help Kind of balance some of our rations of the gaps for those requirements you know all the almonds that we eat in this world they don't just fall off the tree de-hauled and de-shelled you know you have to you have to break the hulls off and clean them up so they look good and we can actually consume the seeds that are within them or the nut those hulls are a huge source of fiber for a lot of dairy cattle in the western states of the U.S. Um, because there's such a that's where all the almonds are grown in the country, and so okay. they need to figure out where to put these um, these uh, nutrient pools, I guess, into into production. And so there's byproducts that are being put to effective use, and that has not only nutritional benefits but environmental benefits too. Because rather than them just being put in the landfill and decomposing and excreting into their gaseous CO2 and methane into the environment, they're being used effectively uh, by livestock production. Oh, wow. Okay. So is there, is there something that as farmers you prefer to use over, over an almond shell or, or something like that? Is there something better to use than there's or worse things? Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's geographically different depending upon where you are. Um, and it's certainly financially dependent too. Um, so some of these products, the more, um, for lack of a better term, I'm going to say process, but that does, that really has negative connotations when you say processed, particularly in the human, uh, food world. Um, but when we're saying processed, I, I kind of mean like heat treated, um, kind of extruded and those have implications because, um, again, not to be too biologically dense, but um, these animals have rumens in front of them. And so basically what ends up happening is what you consume, you know, let's say you consume uh, a heavy protein diet as a human. You have no other biologic organisms other than your, um, your lower gut that's kind of having the, the leftovers of what you've consumed. Um, you have no other biological organisms that are fighting for those nutrients. Now in a room, they have all these microbes that are just sitting there before the stomach or before the cow sees it. They're able to have first crack at all those nutrients and able to get what they, whatever they want, uh, they can kind of uh, 
uh, shape it to what they need. And so that kind of leaves the cow in somewhat of a limitation for some of those nutrients. In order, oh. to, avoid, in order to avoid that, we, we process these, these foods. And so we heat treat them um, or we kind of uh, shape them in certain ways, chemically speaking, so that when they are exposed to the microbes in the rumen, the microbes have, they can't, they have no chemical processes in which enzymatic processes or chemical processes to break them down. So they have very little digestion in the rumen. They pass through that very relatively easy. And then the cow with her, um, you know, highly acidic uh, stomach and then all the enzymes in her intestinal tract are able to break those down effectively and absorb them. So we modulate right. these nutrients depending upon what they are. Uh, to fill the the, the requirements of those cows. So it's a, I'm sure you can attest to it simply based on the fact that what one person eats on one day is not the same as what they eat on the next day. Yeah. You know, that's not necessarily the case. We don't have that problem in, in livestock production because we feed them what we feed them, mm -hmm. but the nutrient supply of those, of those feeds change over time. And so we have to, it's a constant balancing act to make sure that the, the supply meets the requirements. And if we have an excess, can we pull some things out? And if we have a limitation, what can we do to kind of bring those back up to requirements? Okay. Now, looking at requirements for different cows and different groups of cows, is yeah. there, is there a separate, like you said, 200 days before, before lactation, after lactation and yeah. during lactation, could you, how do you guys break that set up? So, uh, you know, it's, it's arbitrary, um, okay. really. And it tends to be a little vague depending upon, uh, who is feeding the animals on particular, in particular locations. And it also depends on kind of logistically how does it make sense to feed animals in a system so that you don't have all these people that are trying to, you kind of minimize the amount of people it takes to feed all the animals on any given day. So there's financial implications for the farmer there. So, you know, you could make 10, 15 groups of, of um, cows based on their lactation because you can split up their requirements in, in that particular way. Logistically and financially, it, it makes very little sense to do so. And so we kind of have two or three um, lactation groups uh, that are fed and they have you know, relatively broad um, requirements uh, to a certain degree that you try to feed for. And so again, it's all a balancing act. Now, how do you learn that you're getting the right requirements into the cow? Yeah. Yeah. So troubleshooting is always an issue. Um, and especially, I mean, you can attest to, to all the different nutrients that we consume in any given day. Um, thinking, you know, what the limitation in the, is, is not always the case. And so more often than not, particularly when we get calls from people out in the field, it's like, you know, I've got something I, I, the software is telling me I should be making X amount of pounds of milk with this percent of protein and fat. And the farmer's yelling at me because that's not happening and he's paying me and I'm not getting the results that he should, he or she should be getting. And so they're kind of asking, you know, what, what do you think this is? And so, um, you'd be amazed uh, when you really start to dig into some of these things, how some of the low hanging fruits that could help 
alleviate some of these problems are just not uh, reconciled. Um, you know, what do you mean? Not to get on a soapbox. So no, know, step up, bro. Get on it. <laughs> so getting up on the soapbox. Um, you know, you go to the gym daily, right? Or, or you know, several times a week. How often are you stepping on a scale to check your weight? Mm, yeah, me personally, not often. Not often. But you know, let's say you're in a you're in the game of, of cutting other... weight and you're wrestling, and you got to make sure yeah. you're on top of your of your uh, in your. If class. I was looking for if I was looking for specific results, it would be almost an everyday thing to stay specifically in tune with what's going on. Right. Right. So you know. From our standpoint, we're trying to feed these 1,500-pound animals down to the grams of, of amino acids. You know, so that's, that's, you know, for those of us who aren't privy to the metric system, there's 454 grams in one pound. So you do the math on that, how many grams yeah. an animal is. So, um, you know, farmers, nutritionists, they don't have an accurate weight on their animals. They, they don't even have a weight on the animal just, <laughs> just a guess now they can tape there's pretty good um indirect measurements of weight so they will tape around the chest they have yeah. a tape measure and that gives you a good estimate of what the weight is but even then, I mean, we're off by a couple hundred pounds let's say yeah how close are we talking yeah right and and if you're eyeballing don't even tell me that you've got a good eye because <laughs> you're you're way off the mark yeah and so these guys are in their computer system and they they see it on the paper and they're like, this looks like a great diet. I'm going to, I'm going to look like a rock star to this person. They go out and they feed it and the cows either, they take a bunch of stuff out and the cows either crash in their milk or they put something in thinking that it's going to improve production and nothing happens. And that's usually when we get the calls. And so there are some low hanging fruit, like, you know, maybe you should go, invest in a scale, large scale, you know, that's a huge capital investment. But mm -hmm. honestly, there's a lot of nutritionists out there who just, they're coming onto it, but they, they don't, they don't do those low hanging fruit things that yeah. would solve so much problems. And, you know, there's, there's other things too. Um, you know, another thing for my fitness pal, when you go and let's say you're eating uh, oatmeal in the morning, and you go and you scan that Quaker Oats box and it brings up uh, all your um, the nutrient profile of that oatmeal and, and you put in how much you're consuming and then off you go. That's that you have your nutrient density and all the different macros that you've consumed given whatever it is you're eating or eggs or, or whatever it may be. Um, that's not always the same for, for livestock production. Now, um, the forage that you consume, let's just take, go over to forage because most diets, particularly in the Northeast and kind of the Eastern seaboard, uh, most of it is about 60 to 70% forage, um, but that's what you want it to do. Want it to forage is what they're eating off the ground? Yeah. So all of your grass or your yeah. corn based, based products. Yeah. Yeah. And so those are, are fermented. Um, basically they're ensiled um, because, you know, in the winter months, we're not consuming a lot of those, those are producing a lot of those forages. So we have to stock up inventories over time. And so you put them in an anaerobic state, which they lack oxygen and they basically pickle. Um, they drop in pH and the mic, the bad microbes aren't able to 
do anything in there because the pH is so low. How long and, does that? How long does that take? Yeah, so I think depending upon the type of of uh, forage you're putting into a into a we call them a bunker silo. Uh, it takes anywhere from three to four weeks, and you know we try to strive for at least one to two months. Okay. Um, there's there's been a lot of good work that's been done that show you know as the residual. So you try to pack the feed as much as possible, but there's some residual oxygen in there that gets consumed by the microbes. So you got to let it do its thing in terms of let the microbes blow off as much oxygen as possible. And there's kind of a, a lag phase in which the microbes are doing their thing. The pH drops over time, and then you have a stable product that you can feed out uh, over a season. Okay. Um, that's, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you don't get good compaction. Sometimes you put a product in or forage in that's very wet or not wet enough and you don't get good fermentation. So, yeah. you know, it's all a different balancing act for a lot of these farmers. And they do diligence to make sure that everything is just so, so they get new products because forage is the cheapest ch cheapest food-based ingredient that a farmer can feed. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, 60 to 70% uh, of any is, is about forage. Um, and so we're, we're trying to make sure that that feed-based product, when we test it for its nutrient profile, that it stays consistent. Otherwise, we have to make adjustments accordingly. Um, the problem is, is that not a lot of nutritionists do it consistent enough. So what ends up happening is it may be one to two or three weeks that they don't test the forages. And there could be a period of time um, in the previous season where you were harvesting a very bad crop and then you know you just happen to get to that part of the bunker silo and you feed it out and then the cows take a nosedive in their production yep. and they're like what's going on and everybody doesn't know what's happening so they go and send a sample to a feed chemistry lab and they get the uh, nutrient profile back and it's way off from what they originally mm -hmm. originally formulated for and so not a lot of people stay on top of that so that tends to be another low hanging fruit thing. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the other things, but. Well, in an ideal world, how much are you testing your feed? I mean, if money wasn't an issue, cause these yeah. things all have costs here, you know, you should be testing. I would, I would say, depending upon how quickly you're moving through the bunker silo, you should be testing a good rule of thumb is once weekly. Um, and I would say that all, certainly depends on how your season, your previous season went. So, you know, you have to have a little bit of, of knowledge in terms of how the growing conditions were when that crop was harvested and if things changed over time. So if you know you're getting into a certain spot in your inventory where things were a little hairy, you're going to want to stay on top of that by maybe testing twice or, or, you know, three times a week is a little too much, but twice, mm -hmm. at least once weekly. Guys okay. are testing once monthly, so there's definitely room for improvement there. Mm -hmm. Is there a shift happening with, I mean, like in other industries where the younger people are coming in, there's more, uh, there's more technology taking place or taking over. Um, is there a pushback from the older guys and then the younger people come in and people are butting heads or how does that work in your industry? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I just like anything else uh, in 
in any other industry that you're in these days, technology is starting to really take over. Um, you know, there's, uh, to not make it sound so romantic, but it's really not, but people will say, the older generation will say the art of feeding dairy cattle. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know if there's really an art to it <laughs> to a certain degree, maybe, but yeah. it's not really that romantic. Um, there is some experience and some institutional knowledge there that a lot of the technology just kind of falls flat on. And mm -hmm. so you get the young bucks coming in that are, are all up to date on the, on the uh, technology and know how things work. And the older guys are, are struggling to keep up with them. And they're like, the younger people are like, you know, I'm going to take your job and there's really nothing you can do about it. <laughs> yeah. And then the time comes when they get into a troubleshooting issue where everything looks again everything looks good in the technology and the computer side of things but the animal is telling you i mean we have a running thing you know if you i, I we don't care what the software says the animal never lies it's going to tell you whether or not you're doing the job you're supposed to be doing and sometimes the animals tell you you're you're full of shit you know you're just not <laughs> doing what you think you're doing and that has serious connotations in an industry where, you know, the, the, the production is based on the nutrients that the animal is getting. And so these young bucks, when they get into a little bit of trouble, it's like, uh, you know, I don't know what to do. I don't have the experience. I haven't gone through this before. And so they call on the old, old people or the older generation. I just <laughs> you know, I'm, saying, I'm saying young buck, you know, I'm, I'm turning 29 this month. So, you know, what, I'm not old in, in the least bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there certainly is a, a mutual relationship here in terms of the younger generation, the older generation. And we, I don't think we've phased any of these, these generations out yet. Each no. can learn from the other. Certainly. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that's right for most things, to be honest. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. It's worth it to shut your mouth once in a while and just listen. And well, I mean, uh, how is it on the on the human side of things? I mean, you must have uh, nutritionists that have been in the game for quite some time. Obviously, yeah. And but with the with humans, I think it's on such a you uh, such a unique perspective to every single person, and everybody wants to be treated that way. That sometimes, I mean, like doing the blood work for somebody is much easier than one person compared to what your job would be. We were dealing with a mass amount of different cattle or different cows because I'm okay with going to pay to get my specific blood work done and then bringing it to a nutritionist and having to tell, like, this is exactly what you need to do. And I think that's worth the money in the human world because you are dealing with yourself. But then we talk about trainers or, like, the new Peloton bikes, and I'm sure you've seen, like, the mirror on the wall that now does workouts at home. Which is, they're amazing. And I think for a certain demographic, those are great things to have, especially sure. now with COVID going on and people are still nervous about it. Well, more power to those people. But I don't think at the same time you can replace that human connection you have with a personal trainer and their client over. I mean, I have clients who I stay in contact now and I haven't even had them as clients in a year. And so you build that relationship because it is such a personable job when you're training somebody. Sure. Uh, but like you said, there's good and bad to both. I mean, there's things that I don't know that I, I can only learn from technology. And there's things that the technology can't come onto the floor of the gym and do with the person. Right. And so I think it's, I think like, I think you're right. I think in every industry there's, there's good and bad pros and cons to everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, 
you know, listening to your, to your last conversation with, with Galen there, you know, he's a big proponent of mentorship and, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's funny to see, um, cause I've been here for several years and I've seen undergraduates kind of come through and become more confident in, in the things that they know and they've got a fire on their, under their ass and they're going to take the, the world by the horns and then they get out there in the real world and they get their ass kicked. And so <laughs> really just kind of shouldering up with somebody who's been out there and, and kind of, you know, learning the ropes and, and understanding that just because what you see uh, in the textbooks or behind a computer screen is not always the case. Uh, you know, I'm a huge proponent of making sure you, you find somebody out there who's like-minded or maybe different-minded, you know, because you could always use different perspectives too, especially this day and age, you know, different perspectives. So that's a good transition. Let's go into not so much how we personally feel about the election, because that could just go on forever, but how does, how does each side affect the farming industry and your industry and then the food and, and the dairy industry and all these things? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's interesting uh, from the perspective that I'm in. And I guess I should preface this by saying, you know, I'm, I'm a researcher. I, I'm not a farmer. Uh, I'm not out there um, working with, with animals on a daily basis and taking care of, of them and, and trying to make my earning that way. Um, what I will say is, is, I mean, you can take a look at the, at the political maps, the electoral maps um, that are currently out there. You know, it's November 4th, day after the election. Take a look. You know, you've got the Corn Belt that's pretty much all all red. Um, they've all gone on with Trump. Now there's some pockets there, but the majority of which are, are farming industries that are very much um, in support of, of Donald Trump because of some of the of the changes he's made in, in trade, particularly with with China. Now you know I I can see that, um, and I am an appreciative of the fact that he brings up agriculture to the to the degree in which he does what i'm a little concerned with is you know again i'm a researcher i believe in in science and the scientific method and data and and following the numbers because the numbers are to you um and so i i am a little concerned about some of the distrust that's been sowed in some of the scientific measures that have happened um, particularly uh, involving COVID. Now, you know, we can have arguments or discussions about whether or not the, the methods that we're taking right now are appropriate for uh, the United States, given the increases in, in cases of COVID, particularly right now, um, relative to what's happening with, with the economy. Um, but, you know, honestly, uh, this is a this is a huge learning curve for everybody, especially the the scientists. And so things are going to get walked back or amended over time. It's just the way things are. Yeah. Given the current information we had at the given time, you make the best that you can. Uh, and some of those things are going to be, you know, not a complete 180, but they're going to change. And you just have to trust that people are not trying to pull a fact. They're just using the information and the experience that they have to make the best case. So, you know, I, I think for farmers, it's the majority are with, with Donald mm -hmm. Trump. Um, but for myself, I'm not 
entirely there simply because of, of the reasons I just stated. Uh, and there's some other things too in terms of healthcare and, and, and those types yeah. of things. Yeah. Um, but dealing with the science thing, how does global warming come into effect with what you're doing and, and, and food and feeding that, that larger group of, of animals? Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's huge. I mean, um, you know, there's a, there's a large population out there that truly believe that the only way we're going to get out of this climate crisis is by going uh, on an all plant-based diet. You know, I have, I, I take issue with that. Um, if you are privileged to do an all plant-based diet and that's the way you want to do these things, uh, by all means, don't let me stop you. Um, but again, we live in a first world uh, country. That's not always the case. Um, I, you know, being in the dairy industry, there is no more complete food out there than whole milk. Um, you're never going to find anything that's more balanced in terms of the requirements needed for, for mammalian life, for, for mm -hmm. animals. Now, we can talk about overconsumption. That's a huge issue. And, and those are some of those things that we really need to be talking about rather than just what types of foods we're eating, just the sheer quantity of food that we're eating. You know, I was just reading... 3,400 calories, kcals is the average consumption in the U.S. And, you know. That's not, it, you don't want to eat that much and expect right. to live a healthy, lean life. Especially, you know, okay, if you're running, running marathons, yeah. yeah For yeah, sure. But the majority of people have a sedentary job, and they're barely consuming or barely uh, burning the basal requirements, anything over the basal requirements that they need, which is, you know, for – a female is anywhere from 1,600 to 2,000 calories and yeah. a male, 2,500. So and, and you do the math. And then you figure out your macros on top of that. And it's like they're getting minimal protein requirements and maximal processed carbohydrates and processed fat requirements. And right. I mean, yeah. It, I mean, it, it, it's simple math at that point. Yeah. Yeah. You, you talk about the calories, but it's, it's just not enough. you got to know where those calories are coming yeah. from. So, you know, I, I – I think, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but I think it's important to talk about it. I, I think there's a need to really address the conversation of, of what type of consumption we are having in this, this world. You know, 100 years ago, we were concerned with starvation. And now in this, in the United States, we're talking about obesity. Now, it's a lesser of two evil problems to have, right? Because you don't want... You know, starvation is a short-term problem that just leads leads to those uh, eventual death. But obesity is a long-term issue that's going to have implications as well. So I think we've kind of, in the, in the age of overconsumption, uh, need to really start to dial back. And, and we're starting to really understand that that we need to, um, you know, not not eat so much. You know, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe work out a little bit more. Uh, practice intermittent fasting, um, and it just and and there's been talk. There's a it's a thing where sitting is the new smoking, and it yeah. really is a sedentary life. I mean, I moved. I was up in New York all summer, hiking the mountains, walking with my dog everywhere, and I couldn't eat enough food to gain weight. And now, since I've been driving the RV from New York to Alabama, where I'm at, it took two weeks, and I really did not move the whole. I mean, I would get up and do my thing, but like the most of my day was sitting. Well, I put on a little pouch around me and it's like, and it's simple. And my diet has not changed. I still work out, 
but it's as simple as just moving throughout the day and burning those extra calories. People underestimate it so much. And, it, and I tell people the walking is walking is the most important thing you can do because it is so easy and you can just get up and just a couple times a day, walk a mile and it'll make the biggest difference the long term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, it's crazy. I, I am appreciative of the fact that companies are now kind of coming together and saying, okay, sedentary jobs are an issue. Um, employees are getting a certain amount of money to purchase standing desks or the ability to have some sort of movement while at your desk. I don't know how many people are investing in like treadmill desks. If that's a- <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But, you know, simply the fact of just standing um, yes. has, has huge differences in, in cardiovascular health. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, overconsumption these, is crazy. Do these things matter? I mean, how much exercise like a dairy cow gets and how much does it move? Does that matter in that world? Um, it's certainly something that we account for. Uh, and again, I think it's depending upon where you are geographically, mm. either in the U.S. or worldwide, there are, this becomes more of an issue than not. So, you know, in, in a lot of our Northeast-based and kind of uh, Midwest um, indoor housing structures for, for livestock, it's not really much of an issue. Cattle are kind of uh, you know, they have free roam within the pens that they, they have, but a lot of that movement is is just simply to, to head to the milking parlor and back. And now during the summertime, that can change um, in terms of grazing. So if animals are put out into a pasture that's a mile down the road and then they're walked back to be, to be milked, you know, that obviously has an energetic cost um, mm-hmm. that needs to be accounted for. Uh, and certainly we have those in our in our software our software okay. programs um but yeah that that's a that's a, a energetic and uh nitrogen based cost as well because there's some amino acid turnover as well mm-hmm. i will say the majority of, of requirements um just through the modern dairy cow now uh, the majority of of her requirements are going towards lactation okay uh, something like a uh, cow produces well, energetically, it's something like 70 megacalories um, per day. So it's, okay. it's a lot of, of energetic requirements. You know, yeah. we're, we're talking about 100 pounds of milk on a, on a daily basis. Uh, wow. so, so that's a lot of that's a lot of energetic. Pounds. That's that a lot of milk. And that's just average. I mean, you have animals that are doing sometimes doing 150, 175. So wow. try to figure. Wow. And what happens if a cow isn't milked? over a long period of time. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's a huge, that's, that's huge. Um, if you um, basically cut off, so let's say one day she's in production, next day she's not. So there are huge chemical signaling cascades that happen in that system, especially when she's producing a lot of milk. Uh, if that pressure, intramammary pressure is not relieved, um, a lot of the, we call them alveolar cells, which are secreting the milk, they start shutting down or um, they will atrophy because they're no longer needed. Um, there's such a, a buildup of pressure there. Um, and then if that happens uh, chronically over time, what you see is, is a huge drop in, in production. Uh, and that can happen with animals. Um, 
simply the, the cow, there are mechanisms in which that pressure is relieved. So you have animals that are naturally just um, excreting milk, you know, out in the, out in the, okay. in the pen, um, which leads to issues as well. You know, we, we uh, mastitis can be a problem, which is what? the bacterial and okay. it's bacterial infection uh, in the mammary gland, um, okay. which uh, uh, lactating female uh, can, can have the same issues as well. Uh, and that has, that can be serious, um, depending upon the strain of bacteria that has infected the mammary gland, uh, it could be the difference between life, life and death. Um, wow. so, you know, we basically isolate those animals. Um, we put them on, uh, depending upon the strain of, of bacteria that has infected, sometimes we put them on a course of antibiotics and they're secluded from the general milk population. They don't go into the supply mm -hmm. of milk. I, I want to stress that in terms of you, you hear everybody say, uh, and, uh, this milk is antibiotic free. Well, there are large, large or large amounts of regulations that prevent that from, from any milk from being, uh, having any antibiotics. And, in, and if a farmer has antibiotics in their milk, there's huge repercussions for that. So, oh, okay. We take, we take a lot of pride in making sure that that doesn't happen um, in the food chain, really. Uh, and so they're given care, uh, isolated, put on an antibiotic regimen. And, and the majority of these animals are um, after, you know, uh, a week to 10 days, they're fine. Okay. They're back with it. And um, we can put them back in the milking herd after a certain amount of time that the antibiotics have been pretty much all uh, out of the system. Okay. Or so cows, cows are milked every day? Yeah, multiple times a day. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's been, uh, you know, back in the 70s, the 80s, 90s, been, uh, the majority of herds would milk two times in the day, once in the morning and once in the evening. The majority of herds now are or three times a day. So a morning, an afternoon, and an evening. Um, and, you know, with the age of technology rolling in, we have herds that are, uh, have robotic systems. Um, so they basically, within the pen, uh, they have a box that has a robotic arm on it. The cow walks in, they're given a little bit of incentive in terms of like a, a sweet treat. So they're fighting over each other to get in there. Uh, <laughs> And the arm comes in, um, milks the cows, and off they go. And, and having never seen a human, um, you know, interacting with them. So um, in those systems, cows, especially high-producing cows, can be milked upwards of four to five times a day just based wow. on, on, their, on their needs. It's kind of at the leisure of the cow themselves, which is, which is huge in terms of behavior and making sure the cows fit um you know what their natural behavior would be well that's what i was gonna ask like so they get a sweet treat can they come can they become conditioned almost like a dog where you give them the treat and they want to start doing something more and more yeah yeah partially yeah and and so you know each cow will either have an ear tag or a collar in which that has a rfid tag which the radio frequency in that tag registers with the robot and so if you get somebody who you know, 15 minutes ago was in there and said, I'm going to go back. The robot said, no, you know, you've uh, already been here. 
tired. You got to wait a little <laughs> bit of time and, and we'll let you back in. So that's funny. And you've Sorry. been around cows, you've been around cows all your life. And yeah. I, I see pictures of them and they seem super friendly to me. It's just like a big, large, inanimate animal because I have no relation with them and I don't know anything about them. Um, yeah. But I've heard they have quite strong personalities. They're very friendly animals. Is this all that's all true? Oh, yeah. A lot of a lot of researchers actually. There's a particular group in Canada, out in Alberta, who their whole research career is based on behavioral aspects of livestock animals. Um, some of that being dairy animals. Now they're a herd-based group. Uh, so what that means is there's a hierarchical structure within that group. So you got a couple of top dogs. Really? Dogs, yeah. Cows in there. Who they're usually the older. Uh, of the group um they've been there for quite some time they know how things go uh and it's kind of their way or their way type <laughs> so, um everybody else in the group kind of respects them or kind of you know uh settles themselves out in terms of the hierarchical structure mm -hmm. and you know you know what does that really mean in terms of um, you know actual expression of behavior um, usually that's, that's, uh, uh, food. So, you know, the, uh, top dog wants to eat whenever she wants to eat, she's going to eat. And, you know, the other ones are kind of going to fill in yeah. the gaps where, where appropriate. Uh, and so there, there's some ways to kind of mitigate some of that behavior in terms of, of isolating certain spaces for cows to eat mm. so that they're not pushing others out of the way and, and making sure that everybody has their, their fair share here, a socialist aspect of, of yeah. eating, so to speak. Yeah. Um, Do you, uh, like that, but. <laughs> probably not, probably not a lot. <laughs> but um, <laughs> is, with that kind of research where you're researching their person, well, how they're treated and how they act, is there any kind of correlation with more production and how well the cows are treated? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, and I mean, and I mean, just on like a, a personable level, like not with say they get the same amount of food and they're not being I mean, they're not being treated poorly. But if the cat, the farmer or the dairy person is in there taking care of them, can is there a difference in how you how you interact with them? Yeah. So, um, again, being a herd animal, cattle are very much creatures of habit. So okay. any perturbations to their um, habits over time definitely has some implications in terms of them, one, trying to adjust to their new new mm -hmm. lifestyle, uh, and two, making sure that, you know, kind of their behavior matches where the production ends up. Um, yeah, there's been a, lots of studies looking at cortisol levels in animals relative to production outputs. You know, happy cows make, make more milk. That's pretty yeah. much plain, plain and simple. Um, so, there's different philosophies in terms of how to make cows the most, um, the happiest. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some people are very much of the proponent of being outside and, and the organic aspect of things, which is definitely all well and good. Um, and I think there should be, there's some opportunity for a lot of dairies to incorporate that into some of um, their day-to-day -day things. Uh, but I can tell you a cow, regardless of, of uh, of which cow you're talking about doesn't want to be outside uh, in cheesy New York when it's negative 40 out, right? They want to be indoors. So there's, there's some caveats there. So, you know, basically 
making sure from an animal welfare standpoint, we're treating our cows or, or any animal really with, with respect, you know, they are there, um, you know, it's, it's a mutual, mutual understanding in the, in the sense that they are helping uh, a livelihood of dairy farming. And in return, you're, you know, providing them a home with adequate food and uh, a good bed to lay in and, and uh, some social interactions with, with herd mates. So that, that way there, you know, there's some mutual uh, mm -hmm. beneficiaries. Um, you know, I will say there, there tends, there, there can be, a, just like anything else, there's a spectrum in terms of, of uh, animal welfare. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure you've seen that there's some videos out there uh, where employees or, or farms have not been treating their animals with the best care. And those are obviously uh, the majority, the, the whole consensus of the, of the dairy industry is, is con, uh, condemnation on that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we do our part to make sure that um, we take care of our animals uh, appropriately. And again, there are certifications that have certain premiums with them to make sure that, you know, you are doing your job to taking care of your mm -hmm. animals appropriately so let's go full circle cayman industries is who gave you the award correct yeah 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 and and they produce what i read 80 percent, or they do something 80 like percent of the world's food or they they i don't remember how it was worded but there was 80 percent in there 80 percent. i'll have to go back and read that but you know Hold so on. i have it right here okay uh mm -hmm. Cayman Industry is a global in in ingredient manufacturer that strives to sustainably transform the quality of life a every day for 80% of the world with its products and services. And so yeah. it's a huge, huge corporation. Yeah, yeah, no, I have, uh, they're, they're globally recognized. Um, and what ends up happening is a lot of these, a lot of these businesses are commodity based. Mm. And so their, uh, their portfolios, um, mm -hmm are not limited to animal production. And so okay. a lot of this, this stuff does include some human nutrition aspects. And so they kind of work in tandem relative to one another. They kind of share uh, knowledge and research and kind of progress their own um, areas of, of, of interest. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of these companies have global reaches. I mean, this time last year in October, this, this Kemen, uh, group, we were actually, um, I was uh, invited to go over to, to Greece and uh, give a talk on some of the amino acid work that we've been doing here and some of the implications those have uh, within the European markets. Um, because some of the technologies that we're implementing in the dairy industry here or in livestock production here is not always adopted in the European Union and mm -hmm. vice versa. So it's kind of a uh, transparency in terms of, of uh, sharing knowledge and what we understand here and trying to relate it to, to their uh, circumstances in, in Europe. So, yeah, these guys are, are uh, globally, globally known. Yeah. And so looking a decade down the road with the work you're doing now, what are you hoping to accomplish? I mean, what is the big picture for you and your work? Yeah, so I think we, we probably... Uh, it's my own fault kind of taking the, uh, the uh, tangent there, but kind of circling back to the, um, uh, 
the sustainability aspect of, of the industry and kind of just agricultural our agriculture in general. Um, about a month ago, there was a pretty predominant um, business in uh, the US uh, called DMI, which is Dairy Management Incorporated. Um, they announced a net zero carbon net zero initiative for the dairy industry in the United States. Um, because for as much of a bad rap as uh, bovines or, or cows may get in terms of excreting methane and, and CO2 into, into the atmosphere, they're really not the majority of, of the cause. No. And, and oh, they're a small fraction. And, you know, again, we can have discussions about this, but that certainly does not mean we can't do our part in, in reducing our own excretion. Uh, and so they put out a net zero initiative and they are investing in a lot of technologies that would allow farmers to really kind of look at the nutrients that they're excreting off the farm in terms of CO2, methane, uh, but also nitrogen excretion as well. So, um, you know, the manure that's applied onto these, uh, onto these cropland fields, making sure that those are not spread or put on the fields in excess to where it has nutrient runoff that goes into the stream waters and, and could ultimately uh, pollute a, uh, a large body of water. Mm -hmm. um, so in order to get to those things, we have to take inventory of, of, those, of those measurements. And again, the software that we use specifically within our lab, which is actually adopted by a large majority of um, the dairy nutritionists in the US, um, the same software that balances for all the, your macros or your amino acids also takes stock of the excretion uh, nutrients that you're putting out into the system. So I think in, in 10 years, I think maybe closer to like five, I, I very much have an interest in this in terms of progressing the technologies within this software system to have large applicability out into the field so that a farmer could take what he or she knows about their system, plug in all the numbers, and they have pretty good representation of how conscious they're being as an environmental stewardess. And if they are performing um, in terms of milk production or meat production or whatever they're doing mm -hmm. uh, relative to the supply that they're getting. Because again, we're all trying to balance uh, efficiency, sustainability, uh, and, fi and financial responsibility yeah. for these for these producers. So, you know, that's my main goal uh, in trying to get uh, these things out into the into the general population. You know, and I and I think this has broad implications, or I shouldn't say broad, specific implications for legislative people as well. So they're able to take these tools that we're using in the industry look at them and say what's a reasonable amount of reduction for the dairy industry or the poultry yeah. industry or the beef industry so that we're not making it so hard for these producers um and setting realistic goals over over the over the a certain period of time now i do think they need to be progressive goals though reason reasonable regulations on everything all right yeah yeah, yeah that everybody can come down the middle and agree on that isn't impossible to reach on the one end of the the farmers and the people producing the food but makes other people who aren't involved in the industry happy with those numbers sure. uh, 
and, and there's a middle ground to be made. Andrew, you're doing good work, man. And I enjoyed learning about a little bit. I mean, I'm completely uneducated in this field, but it was fun trying to understand it. I, I promise you. Yeah, well, hopefully we didn't put anybody to sleep or I didn't put anybody to sleep in the process. I think it was, I think it was very informative and interesting. I really do. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, again, thanks for the time. Uh, and I appreciate the platform. So keep up the good work. Uh, I, I appreciate forward. you coming on. Let's do this again. Uh, and yeah. maybe you, when you get another award, we'll have you on every time you get an yeah. award. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friend. See you All later. Right, yeah, take care. Yeah.